Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath, the author of Stop Talking, Start Influencing. Dr. Horvath, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Lost in Citations. No, thank you so much for having me on. I love I love the the kind of theme of this podcast. So I'm I'm happy to be a part of it. And you are quite versed in in media. So uh, I feel honored. I feel very honored to talk to you. And this is going to be a great conversation. But before we start, uh, can you introduce yourself? I, I know I asked you before we started uh, the recording, yeah. but I just, I just don't want to screw it up. No, no worries. So I'm I'm Jared Horvath. It's lovely to meet everyone, albeit over the podcast. And uh, so I've got kind of two affiliations now. So I'm I'm director of a company called LME Global, um, which we're trying to bring kind of this brain research, science of learning stuff out of the laboratory in, into schools, into into homes, so students can use it better. Um, and I'm also still doing a bit of research, so I'm also an honorary fellow at University of Melbourne. So still chugging away at the research a bit, but hopefully doing a bit more outreach than anything else now. Where are you currently? I'm in Portland, so I've been in Australia for the last 12 years. That's where my wife is, is born and bred, but I uh, we moved here about six months ago to the U.S. to do fertility treatment because oh. they just we yeah we would they said the doctors here are better the equipment's better we were struggling over there so we are now in the U.S. and if everything goes well we'll be here for the next couple of years and then go back down under with a couple above us oh nice one okay well let, let me give you the background about how I I came across this book and your work so I I just started a PhD at Monash University oh nice even though I'm currently in Japan. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm what doing, are, you, are you doing a distance? What's your focus? Yeah, so I'm actually investigating. Um, it's kind of a niche research, but it's I'm investigating the emotional impact of silence on uh, English language teachers, foreign English language Ooh. teachers. So oh, I love it. Yeah, so there's these interactions in the classroom, but um, also it could apply to other areas in their life and possibly, you know, silence culture in Japan and interpretations of yeah. silence and. It's 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 a cool topic. Uh, I was oh, it, it, oh, it, it highlights perfectly those the concept of different. Like when we always say what works best in teaching, well, it could very easily be <laughs> contextually bound. It could be socially constructed. And that's a very interesting the, what what silence means in Japan versus the awkwardness in the U.S. Man, no one here stops talking ever. It's really <laughs> cool to see how that kind of plays out. Yeah, I mean, before in in my master's degree, I was I was focusing on the student side, you know, anxiety yeah. and why Japanese students might have reticence or shyness and don't want to talk. And then now I've kind of turned on the other side of the table. I'm much more interested on the teacher perspective. It can be very confronting to a new teacher in Japan. Used to, I, I just read a paper the other day. This idea of answering versus exploring. Where you know, as yeah. a as a teacher, you maybe just want to call out. So, uh, what do you guys know about this? And you're just sort of eliciting a response, get some momentum. And so, yeah. teachers are sort of trained to do that. And then when they come to Japan, um, there's a there's a, there's a, there's like a quote I read. This Japanese researcher, she was she said she was taught in the first grade, don't even raise your hand unless you know the answer. So these two worlds collide here. Yes, and and that's when everyone's talking about. The future of school is this kind of holistic whole person where school is no longer a performance. It's a learning institution, which is awesome. But you see how that would clash with somebody who's told from the very beginning, nope, it's a right answer or there is no answer. And how the, how is the, the future of education and that concept, how are they going to start colliding? Yeah. So, and it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's hard to 
so I guess part of the thesis I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to have a chapter on the journey of you know these foreign English language teachers. How did we get to this university? And then how did the Japanese yeah. student get to the university? And the journeys are just so completely different, and our expectations and interpretations, and then emotional reactions, and so yeah. it's a big project. But um, anyway, long story short, part of the the Monash PhD program is we have to do professional development, um, which is something I like to do anyway. And one of the options for the courses was your course, uh, the Learning Blueprint. And so, yes. yeah, so I was very fortunate enough to take that course. Um, and that's where I yeah. came across your work. The that makes me so dang happy. Yeah, we've been we've been putting doing some work with them for the last couple of years. But during it was like we kicked off right during COVID, right when that really hit hard down under. So we had no clue if anyone was actually doing it or not. So it is so awesome to hear that you've actually gone through that that program that is so cool to me well can you talk a little bit about that program you were so engaging it just looked like you were in a room somewhere (laughs) so can you can you talk can you talk us through it i mean we can talk a little bit later the details of how people can can um view that content but what was the production like or how long did it take you and i guess that's going to tie into the book as well because after i i uh took that program i went and bought the book um, oh, nice. So I'm guessing that it all kind of ties because a lot of the things you talked about in the learning blueprint are in this book as well. Yeah. So what we try to do, so uh, just as a bit of background, so I was a teacher originally. So teaching was and still is my passion. Um, and But about 15 years ago, I went back to school because that was kind of like the decade of the brain. And everyone was talking about brain in the, the classroom, brain training, brain books. And it sounded awesome, but I couldn't really make heads or tails of it. So I figured, all right, I'll go back, learn it myself. And that's kind of ballooned now into 15 years of studying what's called the science of learning. Essentially, how do human beings take in, embody, and then utilize information? And so what I've been focusing on now, and probably really the last about six years, is how do we take that information that we know in the lab? Because we've been doing it for about 40, 50 years. We've got great research on learning. How do we translate that so that classrooms, students, and teachers can actually use that to change mm-hmm. our pedagogy, to change how we study? And so, yeah, one of the – I made a big course, and it was originally started at Harvard. It moved to University of Melbourne, and it just kind of kept ballooning. And now we've got a massive course, which is – I think something like 30 some hours worth of learning. And so what we did is we just took kind of what we call principles. So the program you took is is what we'll call, say, module one, right? It's eight hours of just principles of learning, mm-hmm. those little nuggets that we can immediately latch onto. And from those, I've also, like you said, kind of written a book so we can go deeper into each of those topics. And that was my thought on this one is let's just take the sexy little nuggets and package those so that teachers can immediately say, oh, if that's how learning works, what does this mean for my practice? And now there's a ton more to it. And I'm, one of these years, we're going to keep going with Monash. There's a ton more that goes past the book and what you've done. But I figured let's just stay with the fun stuff first to see if people are interested. Now, how, how did you how did you produce it? Um, because I have to yeah. say, A, you're very engaging and people can check out your, your website and some of your TED Talks and these things. But also – you kind of practice what you preached, and that's what I that's what, that's what I I liked about it. In a previous interview, we were talking about the book on writing well, and one of the reasons yeah. why we liked the book is the book was so excellently written, right? So <laughs> you're teaching us a class on you know these concepts. It would it would be counterproductive if the class was really boring, or do you know what I mean? Yep. So the the way you spoke, the images you used, the way you you contextualize things, the way you layered things, 
Um, how, how did you know? How did you did you just have one cameraman? This did this take place over the course of a few days? How did you do this? Yeah. So what we did, and it depends on which cycle. We so we had an original version, which was we had a lot of the the big stuff filmed with just exactly that one cameraman in a room with a microphone above me, and we just taught. But the good news is, is I say I've been a teacher for for so long. I've one of the key things when it comes to learning is narrative, narrative, narrative. We have mm. this kind of mistaken assumption that shorter is better. We're talking about bite-sized learning, and that all springs from YouTube. Right. Mm. Kids watch five minute YouTube clips. Let's turn learning into that. And the joke is that's such an interesting takeaway <laughs> from the Internet, because, yeah, kids will spend five minutes watching YouTube clips. They'll also spend four hours playing a single video game or mm. they'll binge watch an entire an entire 10 hour season of Game of Thrones in one night. So we kind of honed in on this five minute thing without realizing that, no, so long as you have a narrative and there's some sort of engagement that's carrying the learner through the narrative, you can take people for hours mm -hmm. and they're still going to be fine. And so that's why I've, I've lucked out that I've, I've been teaching this stuff for so long that I've kind of really narrowed down this for each of the different subjects and said, if I'm going to teach, say, what is the foundation of how the brain works? What's the beginning? What's the middle? What's the end? What's the story that kind of ties all that together? So narrative really becomes key to how I think about organizing things. And then when it comes to editing, I kind of lucked out is I um I actually went to film school when I was young. Wow. So I, <laughs> I yeah, I wanted to be uh, the next um I guess Spielberg. I was really more like a Peter Weir fan. I liked those Darren Aronofsky odd directors. Mm. But so I went to so I learned how to edit, I learned how to do sound and all that stuff. So once I had the guy film it, he just gave me all the raw stuff and I I went to town, spent a couple of days just editing that stuff together, and out comes this final product. All right. So how long did this all take to to film and, and put together? I would say the, the filming we did, because <laughs> we did a student course as well. So we did about 40 hours worth of content in six days, which was wow. absolutely exhausting. Um, but it's just that's I, I know my stuff. So I just said, let's just book it and go. Um, and in terms of editing, that's, you know, that's the long stuff that each session is about 90 minutes, 60 to 90 minutes of content. And so you could assume that would take me anywhere two weeks to edit in all the, the visuals and get all the animations and stuff. So it's it's the filming was fine. The editing, that's just the nightmare. I put that off as long as I possibly. Well, how can how can people consume that content? Is it better to try to convince your institution to buy it that's well, how i, I consumed it yeah i, I like the idea if, it, if a if a kind of uni as a whole embraces it then you can have a group of people going through it together which always makes learning so much better if you've got like a little team of say 10 to 12 people who are all going to say look let's do this together because throughout the project there's little micro projects you do there's little thinking reflections all this stuff and it's always better if you could do it with a team so that's why love when institutions come in and say, look, let's just let's offer it to our, our crew and see if we can't get six to 12 people doing it a term. Love that. But if you want to, I mean, if your institution ain't doing it and you want to take it on your own, you can. If you just go to lmeglobal.net, you can, I think you can take a look at it there. Otherwise, just shoot me an email. I'll get it over to you. I'm very easy with it. All <laughs> I'm right. not trying to hide it from anyone. So I'll, I'll get with you at the end of the episode. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure we have these links on the show notes for pe people cool, to cool. click. Um, all right. It. Well, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like you to tell a, a few stories, um, again, just to sort yeah. of pique people's interest. 
after I watched this, I have to say, it totally... Now, I don't, this is a cliche. I'm not trying to be like standing on Oprah's couch here, but it did change. <laughs> it did. I was about to say this totally changed my life, but that sounds kind of too cliche. It did change the way I view things. And it's one of those things, once you know, you can't go back. Yeah. And it's... it. it I don't know if it's good or bad. I think I think it's good. I think uh, knowledge knowledge can be good, but it's one of those things where this totally changed the way I perceive the world. Um, yeah, go ahead. Isn't that scary? I just I love that most people think, oh, we're <laughs> going to talk about learning and there will be some cool principles. But the joke is when you if you ever want to tie down learning, you have to tie down the brain. And once you tie down the brain, you realize a lot of the ways we think about the world are just they're not compatible with how the brain is actually functioning. So I always say that that first couple of sessions will typically make people feel very uncomfortable mm. in in the best possible way because it just it's like remember when you were like young and in high school and maybe you'd be on a little bean bag and maybe maybe one of your friends had a little weed or something you know you know you don't know what the heck is going on and you'd sit there and you'd talk about the stupidest stuff like, oh, how do I know the red I see is the same red that you see? <laughs> and all these silly things. But it turns out, <laughs> once you go into neuroscience, you have to tackle that. To tackle that, you get that feeling again, like you did when you were a kid of like, whoa, how do I know anything is real? And the kind of joke is you don't. So I love to put people into that kind of stage first, where if we're going to learn about the brain, we have to tackle this big stuff. And once we kind of wrap our heads around that, then we can start to move that. What does that mean for learning? And then it gives you a nice foundation through which to kind of filter all the specific learning stuff. So I'm glad you said you felt a little, <laughs> a little, little jolted by it. Well, I want you to tell the story about color in a second here, but I just want to quickly say that um, I started incorporating these principles almost immediately in my teaching. So for example, I teach a presentation class yeah. and normally it's structured you know, one sort of skill per per lecture, right? And the first the first lecture is like your introduction or um I don't know how the audience views you or posture or confidence and all these things. Um first impressions, these sorts yeah. of things. And so I was like, no, this this cannot be just one lesson. And I made it two lessons. Because yeah. based on what you're saying, you know, this idea that we're constantly in this state of predicting. Yes. Right. So you know, you go into a presentation, you only have a short amount of time to really get people to listen to you or to trust you. And, and so and that's just sort of a quick example where I thought, you know, I need to spend more time on this because if we are in this state of constantly predicting and our brains are pretty much off for most of the time, yeah. as you, as you sort of stated in your, in your course, it's a really important thing for people to think about as teachers or presenters or anything like that. And as soon as if you're thinking about teaching, you're spot on. Is as soon as your students or your class or your course finds a flow, they'll most likely just run that that prediction. They'll be like, mm. "Oh, I get who this guy is. I get what we're learning." Boom, and then they're just going to filter everything through their previous stories. In which case, learning becomes incredibly difficult. So you're spot on. Is is can how many? Yeah, how can we focus on? And this is why I love narrative so much. Breaking predictions early enough. And then sustaining that kind of hold that people now say, okay, I, I need to learn differently with this person, or I need to think differently with whatever the heck they're talking about. So you'll see that that whole first session of the course is essentially me trying to break down your prediction about what is this all going to mean for the express purpose of now that we've got this, now that I've got you into that active mode, now we can really start to do stuff with our learning.
So I love that you're just spending a little more time focusing on that. That's awesome. Yeah, I got I got really into it and I was doing it just started to influence me on a lot of I remember I was doing this thing, I was doing a poster presentation and a person came up and started talking to me and somehow we got started talking about the book and yeah. we got into this deep conversation about predicting and I was almost arguing that there's an, an insidious side to this predicting. <laughs> right like and we got into this deep com- conversation about it because it is insidious in some ways how can, we you know we're just we almost can shut off ourselves yeah. to things as this in the state of prediction you can assume it's it's a biological thing biology doesn't like to work biology wants <laughs> to survive and so it's finding what is homeostasis what's the easiest way so i can just kind of coast through the world um, and so you can see on, on a biological side, prediction is awesome because so long as it works well enough that you're not dead, why would I waste any more energy on it? Mm. So one of the things with learning is you have to push back against your own biology and say, no, I'm going to make you go into a different state. One that's not quote unquote natural, whatever natural means, but one that your biology typically wouldn't want to go in. And you've got to sustain that enough till you build a new equilibrium until your body relaxes an interesting thing i don't know if i talked about this in the in the course but so we're talking about this so for your listeners so the brain's kind of got two different modes right we're going to call one active learning that's when it's physically changing itself it's building new learning doing new stuff and one we're going to call passive that's Mm. where it's just running old stories right it just says we've seen this a million times i'm just going to do what i've always done cool now you can assume 90 to 95 percent of your day you're in that kind of passive just autopilot mode And for a long time, we thought, well, cool, let's see if we can't get people into that more active mode for longer. Like, we got a six-hour school day. Let's get them in there for six hours. Cool. Mm -hmm. But it turns out you've got a pretty hard limit. We've only got about three and a half to four hours of uh, time per day that you can be in that active learning mode till you tap out. Now, the reason for it is this is, so your brain uses glucose. That's its energy source. It's essentially sugar. But when your brain, that's when your brain is in the passive mode. Anytime your brain goes into that active mode, it needs more energy than it can get from glucose in your blood. It needs extra juice. And it steals that from little stores of sugar in your brain called astrocytic glycogen. Now, that's the joke is you, it's already pre-stored in your brain. There's only so much you can use in a day. And you've got about three and a half to four hours a day that you can tap into that extra juice. Once you're out of that, you're done. There is no more active mode. There is no more real learning. And I'm sure your listeners know, like if you've ever gone to a day-long seminar, like a conference, and you're you're jazzed, you're like, oh, this is going to be great. Session one, awesome. Session two, really good. Session three, ooh, we're starting to waver a bit. Lunch, uh, Sessions four and five, by the end of the day, man, you're hearing nothing. You're yeah. just like, I have, I got, I'm tapped out. And that's literally, it's because you have no more energy to go into learning mode. So the best you're ever going to do is just hear things you already know and go back to what you were doing anyway. So that, so that's why it's it's this whole idea of active learning. There's, there is a limit to what we can do. So it's interesting how we can choose to play it. When do we kick into it? When do we help people kick out of it to build better predictions and then go back into that autopilot mode? It all becomes kind of those things we think about when we're teaching or designing a course or a program. I mean, yeah, you, you talk a lot in the course and in the book about those, those ways. And a lot of them are when people make mistakes, you know, we learn from, well, not all of us, um, you know, <laughs> but you try to learn from your mistakes, right. Or, or feedback yep. the, you know, I, I was thinking when I was reading the book, I can't remember, you might've used this metaphor. I can't remember, but the idea is like, you're driving a particular way that you've drove, you've driven a thousand times before, but you almost get in an accident. 
You're not going to forget yeah. that. You know, if you just forgot to turn left or, or turn right, you know, the rest of the time, like you said, our brain's just in this autopilot. We're not even, yep. we're not even really there, which is crazy. When you, when you give that number 90 to 95% of the time, it's, I, it's it, crazy to think about. People think I'm just pulling that out of the air. Like, oh, you know, people always say 90% for anything. Oh, you're 90% happy. Oh. No, but that's literally about 90 to 95% of your day, depending on what you're doing. You'll just, oh, you won't essentially be there. You'll be there. <laughs> but I'm thinking like, I just got back from a vacation. Man, I just, I was there for lunch. That was really good. And the rest of the time I was just reading. I couldn't really tell you much about what I'm reading, but there you go. I'm essentially just autopiloting through the day. And that's okay. That's how we conserve energy. But you're right, is one of the, easiest ways to kick people into that active mode is to screw up. If your brain has a prediction and that prediction is different enough from the world to be meaningful, you won't have a choice. Your brain will automatically go into the active mode because it's trying to save your life. Your brain, know, like people talk about the brain, like it's this big active thing. Your brain doesn't know anything. It doesn't know the difference between good and bad, right and wrong, moral and immoral. The only thing the brain knows is alive and dead. So anytime you're just running a program and your brain's passively doing its thing and it's different enough from reality, like you're going driving and all of a sudden a deer runs out in front of you and your brain says, we've never had a deer before. Bing, congratulations, lover, hate it. You're going into active mode. So it's a safety mechanism by which you can quickly change your stories, your predictions, so that in the future you'll be safe if this ever happens again. Now the problem is, is in a case of like driving, right? You're, you go into that active mode most people are going to just say, yep, let's learn, and you're going to learn from it, and you're going to go on, and everything's going to change. Awesome. But when you're in, say, a classroom where the threat doesn't feel threatening, where you thought the answer plus two was five and somebody told you it's actually four, you'll still go into that active mode when you make a mistake like that. It's just because it's not completely life-threatening and emotionally recognizable as uh-oh, you now get to choose what I'm going to do. Should I learn the new thing two plus two equals four, or should I just keep going back to two plus two equals five? It's worked, you know, this many years of my life. Why should I change it now? And most people will choose to revert back to what they did before. So we say when you make an error, you don't have a choice. Your brain will always go mode. But once it does, you then get to choose what to do with it. Stick with it and change, or go back to normal. Erase it and go back to what you were always doing. Well, let's and let, let that's a good transition to chapter eleven in the book, uh, stress. Yeah. Um, I actually did sort of a professional development session on this chapter where I so any any of my colleagues that are listening to this podcast they'll they'll be excited about it because I I essentially I plugged your book so you can, you can be happy about that um, I, I plugged your program <laughs> and I talked about this chapter because the argument that you make in the chapter which I think is a good one is that. You know, emotions aren't a bad thing in the classroom, and that, especially what you just said. Now we have to be careful, um, but the changing emotions throughout the course of a class or leveraging emotions or student emotions, again, you have to be careful, but yeah. it is a good tool for learning. And wow, you did a good job. All right, so we, we should just take a step back and just explain. You have a PhD in – can you just give you – have an, you have a master's in education – yeah, so I've got a, an M.Ed., so my focus for my master's in ed was educational neuroscience, um, essentially how does the brain learn, and then a Ph.D. in cognitive neuroscience, wow. where we expanded that to brain stimulation. So I did a lot of medical work for about five or six years there, and we were looking at, again, 
how does the brain learn? But then we were trying to actually influence it with electricity and magnetism and pills. And it was, it was a crazy time in my life. (laughs) So what what I mean is that you're, you're researching this really difficult thing. You did a great job. You know, you you gave us these cast of characters (laughs) in the brain and that, you know, the, the hip hippocampus, the amygdala, cortisol, yeah, uh, there's words I can't uh, pronounce. Um, <laughs> ACR protein, and after reading this chapter, I got a really good sense of how the brain works. Um, and again, th- this is something that I was researching before. You know, the, the Yerkes Dodson law and these things. These yeah. are th- th- a lot of people know. You know that that peak performance happens somewhere where stress is occurring, but not too much, right? Yeah. Um, but what's your what's your take on this? When a teacher could read this and say, "Look, okay, emo- uh, leveraging emotions can help learning," as you say, your you know feedback, you know error cor- error correction, uh, pa- pattern interrupts, these sorts of things. Yeah. How can they do it in a safe way? Because you do mention that in the book as well. And it's it's interesting. It's it's so I think what's fun about what I do, and it takes a long time to get there, is I I'm a translator now is I know neuroscience so deeply and I know teaching and pedagogy so deeply that I can combine the two. I can walk one into the other. And a lot of people think, oh, that's some that's a gift you have. You can explain things that are difficult in a concrete way. And no, it's just it, it's that's what you can do once you've spent so much dang time thinking about one thing. Anyone can do it. If your favorite thing is tennis, trust me, you can explain tennis to a five-year-old and they'll love it. I couldn't, I don't know anything about it, but when it comes to things like this, like, so chapter 11, we look at stress. I taught it the way I wish someone would have taught it to me, mm-hmm. right? This is the way they, the way that I, when somebody, cause everyone talks stress and you know, it's good, you know, it can be bad, cool. But until you get the mechanism, it always just kind of remains a, a story. It's, a, it's interesting, but I don't know what to do with it. But once you get the mechanism, once you know why these p- patterns work, then you have a little bit more agency over it. You can start to actually play with it a little bit more. And that's where translation comes in. It says, I can give you those mechanisms in a way that's not going to bore the (laughs) daylights out of you. And so hopefully that's what I was trying to do with this book. So in this case, you're right is, so if we're talking, so chapter 11 specifically talks about stress and the stress response is neither good nor bad. The only thing about the stress response is it changes based on its duration and its intensity. So I think in the book, I only talk about duration. So we'll stick with that. The stress response, if you have it for a couple of hours or even a couple of days, it's running a system which is essentially up-regulating your memory. It's your, anytime you select stress, your brain starts to say, well, cool, whatever's happening must be really important. Otherwise, you wouldn't have stress selected as your feeling, and it will just start laying down memories. But once that stress reaches three, four, five days, once it goes too long, the entire mechanism, it keeps doing exactly what it was always doing. It just flips. And instead of upregulating your memory, essentially making more deeper memories, it shuts your memory system down. It says, okay, same chemicals, but let's do something totally different. Why? Because it's, it's meant to protect you from trauma. If you've got stress for three, four, five days, your brain assumes, uh-oh, you're trapped, you're helpless, you're stuck, and we're not going to kick back on your memory until you get out because you don't want a deep memory for being stuck in like a bear trap for 10 days. So essentially the exact same mechanism just flips its function. And now you don't make memories until you stop that stress response. So an interesting thing about stress is 
a lot of the times we try and avoid it altogether. Like, oh, stress is bad. No, man, short term, it's fine. So these are things like high expectations for our mm. students, having a clear progression of learning where you know where you were yesterday and we have set goals for today. I want to do this much better or I want to make sure I get this today. Um, uh, believe it or not, clear rules and consequences do it as well. So a good kind of rule of thumb is tension plus certainty equals stress. When something haywire is happening, but I know what the outcome is going to be. If I break this rule and I know if I get caught, this is going to be the outcome. That leads to stress. I'm kind of in control of it, and it upregulates my memory. But if you have tension with uncertainty, that doesn't lead to stress. That leads to fear. Mm. So if I'm breaking a rule and I don't know what's – chances are I'm not going to be doing a high memory stress. That's going to send me into fear mode, and now learning might start to kind of suffer because of that. So the more we have these clear and consistent rules and repercussions, if you do X, Y is the outcome, and we stick to it. This is the problem with the U.S. justice system. We're supposed to have this entire judicial system based on clear rules and consequences. If you blank, X is the repercussion. But the joke is it's so flippant, man. Unless you you're kill, a billionaire. A big, that's what I'm thinking. If you kill someone, you might get 20 years in prison. If I yeah, kill someone, I might get five years. And if a billionaire kills someone, they might not even go to court for it. So there is no clear and consistent repercussion. Ergo, most of the time anyone breaks a law or does anything crazy here – it leads to fear rather than a learning stress response. Mm. But if we're consistent with our rules and go back to class and, the, and school in the classroom, that's another way to drive healthy stress. When you know what the rules are, you now get to choose what to do with it. That's going to lead to a stress rather than a fear response. Well, let's let's go on. Let's go on that expectation thing because I I was yeah. thinking about that a lot recently, especially with my research about so these emotional reactions to silence. Like I said before, a lot of it comes down to a lack of mutual cultural understanding and different yeah. expectations. So for example, um, for a teacher's perspective, this is your only chance to practice English that we'll get once a week. Um, oh, you should try harder or you should do these things. Um, these are things that I'm expecting them to do, which are maybe not in their expectations. I realize now I need to spend way more time setting the expectations for a verbal performance or how I want you to interact you can't, and, and this is just, the, and people can use this metaphor for whatever context you're in. Just because you think your students know what they should do, it's not necessarily <laughs> the case, right? Yeah. It's just, you, especially as teachers, we've been doing this a certain amount of time, or we had certain teachers that influenced us, or all these things. I, 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 I just keep falling to that trap where I expect the students to know the expectations, like yeah. all of them. And the scary thing is, we we've kind of. <laughs> We've we've pushed that against ourselves. So I, I think in the last, I want to say maybe 10, 20 years, we were going more progressive with education, which is fine in some senses. I'm totally fine with evolving education. But we've kind of gone so far against structure, consistency. And we forget that we grew up with structure, so we know how school should work. But we've never instilled that structure into our students, into the next generation of kids. So we get school because we were, went through a really highly structured education system. Our kids, unless we tell it to them, almost certainly won't. And we'll be expecting some things of them that they never experienced. They'll be expecting some things of us that they just don't get. And that's where I, th I think mm. if we can go back to this idea of structure and consistency, it's fine. It's not a four-letter word. you got to remember – 
students are students. Now, university is slightly different, but if we go back through K through 12, right, we're starting to treat them like little adults. Like you can make your own decisions. You can decide what's going to happen for you. You can pick your own things to study. Why? <laughs> Quite literally, our job is to prepare them for adulthood. And the less we take that job as being I need to teach you, and we just become like, hey, I'm just going to facilitate what you want to do, then what are we doing there? The, the, if we assumed that a four-year-old can meaningfully choose what he or she wants to learn, then why don't we give them a pair of keys, let them drive, let them pick if they want to smoke, let them drink, let them vote, let them go to war. Why don't we do those things? Because we recognize they're not mentally ready for those kinds of things. Why would we think any differently when it comes to learning and key topics? They need guidance, and that's the job of the teacher is to teach so that when they reach the real world, they have a system in place that they know how to act, they know how to learn, how to access things. Cool. So that changes a little bit when we get up into university level, or hopefully they'll get some system. But I think this idea, going back to structure, being very clear, what are my success criteria? What are the outcomes? What are the goals for this lesson? What are the goals for this week? The more clear we are with expectations and structure, the easier it is for them to perform in a manner that we're hoping to teach them instead of Trojan horsing and just hoping they'll get kind of exactly what you're saying. Like, I expect you should know this. Screw it. Even if you do, I'm still going to structure this out for you. Never yeah. going to hurt to just lock those kind of concepts down. And I mean, that relates to, again, our own bias and our own predictions, right? Sometimes we don't yeah. like, I, that's what I'm doing a lot of reflecting on before I, I have a break. Now our, our school term starts again in April. Um, I need to spend a lot more time with with expectations and anyway, um, I'll, I'll move on well, to something I, else. You kind of you kind I of answered I the would, question. I just want to throw something on the back end of that too. Is I I think you can differentiate. We're talking about this briefly earlier. You can differentiate social institutions by whether or not they're performance based or learning based. Mm. Now, most things will be a performance based institution. Work. <laughs> You're not there to figure out how to do brain surgery you're there to successfully perform brain surgery pilots you're not there to learn you're there to perform and when it comes to performance situations things like error things like failure things like mistake they suck you don't we, we, i don't want my surgeon being like oops oh, i cut his aorta but that's okay you know next time i won't do that no i don't want my pilot being like ah landed upside down next time i'm gonna get that right in the performance mode Failure, mistakes, errors are the worst things you can possibly do. Mm. In a learning mode, that's when you want to embrace mistakes. That's when you want to say, look, when there is no grade coming at the end of this. There is no A+. We're here to talk because you are going to suck, and I want you to suck, and I'm going to build that suck into our <laughs> lessons. I'm going to have you purposely make mistakes to see if somebody else can catch them. I'm going to make mistakes myself to see if you get what I'm doing mm, wrong. I like that. Yeah. So, so long as we recognize that school or we set the intentions that this particular class period, if it can't be all of school, we're in learning mode. This is learning based. This is not a performance. You're not going to get graded on this. There is no A. You all have A's. One of the best classes I ever went to at university, the very first day of class, the guy said, congratulations, you all have A's. And I'm not lying. And he wasn't. Everyone got an A in his class. He said, now that that's over with, if you want to stay and learn, let's learn. If not, get up and go. And about half the class left, never saw them again. They got their A's. Wow. But the rest of us, we were no longer worried about getting our A. So it was the best learning. We had the best discussions, debates. People were trying things. They were failing. Like people would do projects that were just horrible. 
but at least they tried. You know they would never try them anywhere else. And it was because we recognized it was the first time somebody had made it clear this is a learning institution. This is not a performance institution. And so maybe that will help with with engagement at some level once kids start to recognize that and we start to build accordingly. And you and you answer my question too. I mean, that was that was my main question. How do you how do you leverage emotions in a safe way? And you, you just answered it for me. Boom. If you know it's a learning time period, emotions become a lot easier to play with. And think about, I think a good thing with emotions too is kind of like what you were saying earlier. Think about Hollywood. Mm. If you want to leverage, there is no bad emotion or good emotion when it comes to learning. Like people say you want to be happy and fear makes bad learning. Well, shoot, go to military school. Those guys are scared out of their wits and they're learning a ton. Mm -hmm. Uh, Disgust. If you ever tasted something nasty, you're going to learn from it. So all emotions are fine. The trick is to just recognize it's it's safety, right? We're we're in a safe space, and I'm going to take you on an emotional journey. Think of the best movies in the world. They're not one note. They're multiple notes. They're funny, and then they're sad, and then they're scary, and then they're lighthearted, and then they're sad again. Unpredictable. Exactly. And, and they it, boom, they shock you. They break some sort of system, like Game of Thrones, the first season. They did landish that I had never seen before. I couldn't stop watching it because I needed to know how do you do that in a show and still have a show? And right. lo and behold, they just kept, I don't want to ruin it for anyone, but they just kept doing it again and again. But that's where you take them on a journey. And then I think about movies like those Oscar darlings, we call them, or, or award bait. They're made specifically to get awards. They're always one note. Man, 12 Years a Slave, that was depressing from frame one to mm-hmm. the last frame. There was no movement of emotion. So I remember nothing from that movie other mm. than, damn, it was depressing. Whereas some films, they just, they take you. There's a little levity here. Then there's a little depression here. Then there's some anger over here. Take them on a journey. Don't think about one note. Think about multiple notes in a safe spot. That's how we can start to leverage it. Let's let's talk about emotions versus feelings for a second. Mm. I, I, have to, I have to bring up this um, – I'm part of uh, I'm part of a society called the International Association for the Psychology of Language Learners, and every now and again we have these roundtable discussions, and it's yeah. really cool, especially since well, from from COVID, where people can get together and talk about the psychology of language learning and all these things. And there was this one group, um, and they were talking about teacher emotions, and everyone was going around the room and they were talking about their research with emotions. Yeah, and it was cool. And I had just read your book, and I had gone through your course, and. I was kind of ex- I was kind of excited about it, but then people started blurring emotions and feelings, yep. and they just kept doing it over and over again. And I kind of raised my hand and said, "Okay, shouldn't we clarify the distinction between emotions and feelings?" And then I and now I now I had read about um, you know Matsumoto's work about the emotive facial expressions. You know, we're born with these. Fa- I, so I had known a little bit about it, and then reading your book yeah. helped me know about it more. Um, especially this distinction. And I had to read that chapter multiple times to get my head around it. Um, but then <laughs> and I said, now, before we start talking about frameworks of research, shouldn't we make the distinction between emotions and feelings? And then I went in and sort of started talking about your book. And there were two people in that room, in that Zoom room that were like, no, that's not true. Or like, that's not true. And that's <laughs> not true. And I was so taken aback. Um, I thought, well, I just read a book by a neuroscientist. How can you tell me that it's not true? 
you made the you it's like i don't think he's making like an opinion is so i guess my question is is this a debate yeah it will it's what you're seeing or what you're now tapping into is going to be a debate of what we call levels of organization and nomenclature nomenclature is easy it's just what do you want to call different things different people will group phenomena in different ways now why do we group them differently that tends to then come back to levels of organization. That says, at what level are you trying to explain this phenomenon? So take something like emotions. You could explain that at the biochemical level, what literal chemicals are flooding through your system. You can explain that at the psychological level. How does that manifest in your behaviors? You can mm -hmm. explain that at the social level. How does a, these, a group interact when this emotion comes on? And this is why universities have different fields and why we silo up is most levels of organization are what uh um what the heck is his name fair bend is that his name god i haven't read him in a long time i'll have to think about it but he's the guy who spoke about sorry i couldn't help you <laughs> no that's all right i'll look him i'll look him up i have his books i just haven't looked at him in a bit but he speaks of incommensurability he says because each different field, each level of organization, we use different tools to gather our data, which means we have different data that we deem is relevant versus irrelevant, and we use different words for that data and ways to analyze it, the fields will never be able to talk meaningfully. At mm. some level, you can translate, you can get ideas from one to the other, but in so doing, you're kind of changing what it meant in one field. So when it comes to this debate between emotions and feelings, we what you're going to find is different people in different fields will fight differently about it. And it's purely because what data are we using? At what level are we trying to explain it? At a biological level, emotions and feelings are very different things. Emotions are chemical reactions. They're bodily reactions to an environment, to a stimulus. When a spider plops on your lap, there are certain chemicals that are going to flush through your body. That is an emotion. Your racing heart, your clammy skin. That's what we mean when we say emotions, because we have no psychological level there. Mm -hmm. Feelings are the psychological interpretation of those emotions. So emotions are really heavy biochemical. Feelings are really heavy mental. So that's how we differentiate it in our field. We say if we're talking chemically, we're talking emotions. And when you talk about chemicals, there's only so many emotions you could ever have. There's only so many chemicals your body will ever respond to. So there are finite number of emotions finite number of things your body will respond to psychologically feelings your mental interpretation of those physical sensations that's infinite there are infinite number of ways you can choose to interpret that those emotions and that's where we get this gradation now where emotions say you can be happy or sad feelings says you can be elated you can be joyful you can be depressed you can be dysthemic here's where we get all those kind of gray shady areas so i think what what you probably came across was some people were probably talking at a psychological level and they just don't recognize or consider emotions at a biological level and it's just that's what you're going to get when you get a bunch of people in a room together yeah and that's what i was kind of interested about it because they had such strong feelings and you just you, you, you that's really a great answer because depending on the way that they had researched things, they started mm. quoting, you know, well, this person's theory on activation and this person. And I said, look, I'm not, I'm not arguing about this. I'm just saying we should be, <laughs> especially if we're talking about language learning, it ties yeah. into what you said. There's an infinite possibilities for psychological interpretations of, of, of an emotion. 
yeah. because depending on our language ability, our experience, I that's all my point was. Like, shouldn't we make it, the distinction here? And that's what I would love to. I, I think psychologists, and this is could be, again, me just going back to my field, but I think psychologists should only really use the term feelings. I think oh. anyone in a biological field will most likely and probably should use the term emotions. But I think exactly what you're saying is it's going to be they're talking about gradations. They're talking about interpretations. You're just trying to say, let's be clear. We're talking about feelings because there are going to be people in this world, myself included, who don't recognize feelings as emotions. We're going to say there is no such thing as a sense of justice in the brain. That is you coloring it with all this other information. And it sounds pedantic, but it, at the level I work, I have to be specific with the level I work at. Now, in a classroom, I don't think people care too much about biology. Believe it or not, mm. we had this huge debate a while back, and I think it's been pretty cleared because of this levels of organization stuff, that we don't teach brains. We don't teach biology. We teach students. Students are an emergent property of all these different things. So when we talk about learning, when we talk about education, we should be talking at those higher levels, using those terms that kind of understanding rather than trying to reduce down to chemicals and emotions. But again, that's a, we could just be talking words here. It's well, here's the, how you choose to interpret it. Well, just to wrap it up. The only reason why I put my hand up is because someone mentioned jealous, right? Yes. They put up their hand and they talked about <laughs> their study involved with teacher emotions in regard to jealousy or student emotions in regard to jealousy. That's where I raised my hand because yep. that is the perfect gray area where there is no man's land. Like that is not an emotion. That is not an emotion. And and, nope. and and just like we on the Yerkes-Dotson spectrum here, one person can be excited and one person can be anxious. Right? And they could they have the same emotion going on at the same time, right? Bingo. They're, Absolutely. So that's that's where I said, look, that's not an innate. We're not born with jealousy. We're just not. Yeah. Boom. And then you start to say, where do these gradations come from? So like, take something like jealousy. So if you boil down emotions, chemicals, we typically say there's six. Some people say up to 12, but it's easier just to say six. You've got joy, you've got sadness, you've got anger, you've got disgust, you've got fear, and you've got surprise. Those are your base chemicals. So if you take something like jealousy, what you'd assume, if you just showed me a body and said, this person was jealous, here's a blood sample, what would you see? My guess is I would shoot. I would. Here's where it gets tricky. I would see probably chemicals related to fear, um, anger, and possibly surprise. But that's all you're going to get is at a biological level, we're just going to get a mix and match of these same six chemicals. What that means psychologically to a human is totally different. And exactly as you just said, if you gave me two different blood samples and they had the exact same chemicals, I would say, sweet, these two people are the same. But now you take it up and you could tell me, nope, this one was feeling excited. This one was feeling jealous. I would say, sweet, there is absolutely no way to differentiate that at the biological level. Well, Mat we Matsumoto not... has contempt as number seven. And he argues okay. for contempt because that's the only facial expression where it's, uh, what does he call it? Bilateral? There's only one side yeah. of your face that makes it. So he he's done he, he he argues that there's we're born with seven and one of them is contempt. So I would, if you're going to go through his lens, then then contempt would, is related to jealousy, I guess. I, you could throw that in there. I'd be happy to to look at the chemicals again. I'm going to go back to what are the chemicals. If you can give me the different constituents 
of contempt and said, here's a whole new chemical signature, I'd say sweet. Go to town. Uh, yeah, I have no idea about that. He just he's just looking at the facial expressions. But that would that would that then there'd be an argument that there is a chemical making that facial expression, right? But I think that well, this is this it could be a chemical or it could be a higher level of organization feeding mm. back to make that expression. Interesting. So here's just kind of a good rule of thumb. So I guess this is I, I forget what you call these. They're little logic experiments. But here we go. Let's keep this simple. So here's a proposition: all dogs are brown. Cool. Now, if I give you something and it's a dog, will that dog be brown? The answer is yes, of course. If all dogs are brown and you hand me a dog, it's going to be brown. But flip it. If all dogs are brown and I hand you something brown, does that mean it's a dog? Well, Mm. no, it could be a log. It could be mulch. It could be anything that's brown. So that argument, all dogs are brown, goes one way, but it doesn't flip sense the other way so it's a single logical kind of path you can take so go back to something like like um learning right people say when you're learning you have dopamine in your brain that is absolutely true so let's take it let's take it so that's your kind of proposition when i'm learning i have dopamine in my brain right now i am learning does that mean i have dopamine absolutely flip it right now i have dopamine does that mean i'm learning well, no, you could have dopamine in your brain for a million reasons. You could be excited. Maybe you just took a shot of something. Maybe you just learned, a, like, who knows? So it works one way, not the other. This is kind of the emotions-feelings debate, right? When you're stressed, cortisol is one of the chemicals in your body. Right now you're stressed, so I will expect to find cortisol. Absolutely. Flip it. I found cortisol in your blood. Does that mean you're stressed? No. It doesn't work the other way around. And this is the problem of levels of organization. This Mm -hmm. is when we go back and we say, if you can, I talk about emotions at a chemical level, but the joke is if you can give me two, three, 10, a million people with the exact same chemical signature, and you ask me, what is that person feeling? I'll say, I have no clue because that part of the exact same chemicals could lead, could mean that you're feeling happy, sad, anxious, jealous. Uh, whatever emotions, or excuse me, whatever feelings you choose to layer on that. And that's the difference between biology and psychology. That is so funny because, oh my gosh, what? (laughs) So I was in an argument between emotions and feelings. So hopefully people are sticking with us here. And I used Matsumoto's research about the seven facial expressions that we're all born with as the argument to defend what I was actually talking about you from your book, which, which you just explained wasn't a valid argument to defend what was in your book. <laughs> well, it, it, it might be, but that's where it it, might the be, facial right? expressions, not, he's trying yeah. to tie those to biology because he's mm-hmm. saying from birth you have those. So he's sitting in this gray zone where he might be talking biology, but at the same time, just because you have a scowl on your face, when you're angry, you scowl, right? If you're angry, I would expect a scowl. There it is. I see a scowl. Does that mean you're angry? Well, not necessarily. A scowl could mean a million different things besides just anger. Fascinating. So it works one way, but it doesn't work the other. And it becomes, that's where the psychology and the biology become very intertwined and very tricky. That's where they become essentially incommensurate. And so a lot of people make arguments from the brain, and then they tie that immediately to psychology when I try and keep the two separate and say, no, if you're going to talk psychology, talk psychology. But if you're going to talk neuro, talk neuro. The two can talk together it's very difficult but we can translate back and forth and that's what i try and do but 
that's probably when you get into this, these debates with people, they're probably talking from a psychological level and you're trying to hit them from a biological level. And it just, it, it gets confusing fast. All right. Maybe a couple quick questions. I don't want to take too much of your time. Again, the book is Stop Talking, Start Influencing, uh, Jared Cooney Horvath. And when I'm reading this book, I need to sort of flip it up, flip it upside down. I love it. You got, you know, got black and yellow. I learned that as a young, as a young kid, those are, those are very, uh, impactful colors. Um, when you're reading the book, sometimes you need to flip the book on its side and uh, flip it around. Uh, you really practice. And again, um, the course is LME Global, and the, all those links will be on the show notes. Um, okay, couple couple quick things. You mentioned uh, the color red before. This was the thing, and I guess you probably get this a lot because um, you do a lot of talks and you do a lot of. This was the part where I just could not believe what was going on my jaw was on the ground do you mind uh, uh, you don't need to tell the whole story i guess I, i'd love for people to read the book and, and would you mind giving the story about blue if, yeah, if you don't no mind worries. i know you got you're yeah, gonna we'll give, eat dinner here pretty soon but maybe no, as much as we'll time give as a, uh, an abridged version because yeah. this this can go for about a good 30 minutes but <laughs> it essentially starts with homer the odyssey and the iliad there was a researcher back in the day turn of the century who noticed that Homer never used the word blue in any of his writing. He used purple, he used red, he used yellow, he used green, but the word blue doesn't appear in either the Odyssey or the Iliad. And so he thinks, oh man, this is a bit strange. So he looks at all ancient Greek writing and he finds blue isn't mentioned anywhere in any piece of ancient Greek literature. So from this, he has a think, he's like, this is strange. And his big conclusion was, well, I guess Homer and all the ancient Greek authors must have been colorblind, right? That was his theory, that if you wanted to be an author in ancient Greece, step one, you had to prove you were colorblind. Like, that's kind of a prereq. So he says this, and people kind of laugh at him, and he's like, yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about. And that's it. He drops it there, finds this really interesting thing, and then never talks about it Like, again. for example, you said in, in Homer, he he called the ocean, what, wine, dark dark yep. red wine or something? the color of wine so he, yeah. he he called it the wine dark sea right and um <laughs> he talks about sheep he calls sheep violet honey is green um i think iron is purple so he just has just these really weird colors and blue is just never one of them hmm. so that's why he was thinking this guy must be colorblind because he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about purple sheep come on man mm -hmm. so a couple years later well about 20 years later another researcher comes along and he says i actually think there's something more going on here so this researcher his name is um uh who it was oh, i'll leave it with me I'll, I'll think of it in a second but he goes through all ancient cultures he can find right ancient egypt ancient iceland japan china vedic hymns hebrew texts you name it goes through all just goes as far back as he can in their writing starts counting up the appearance of color words, and he finds every single culture in the world follows the same pattern when it comes to color. Essentially, the first colors that appear in every ancient culture's writing are always black and white. Those are the first ones. Red appears next. Green and yellow alternate. And the last primary to color to appear in every ancient civilization's writing, except for one, is always blue. It's the last significant color to pop up in every culture's language. Now, one culture went, was a little different. One culture went black, white, red, green, blue, yellow. So they were using the word blue or the term blue before anyone else. And that was the ancient Egyptians. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. So what did the Egyptians have access to that no other ancient civilization had access to? 
a little stone called lapis lazuli. Now, if you think about it, blue is ridiculously rare in nature. There's no blue trees in the forest. There are no blue kangaroos jumping along the plains. To this day, the only natural source of aquamarine blue we have in the entire world is this stone, lapis lazuli. It was a stone. It was mined in Afghanistan. It was brought down to Egypt. The Egyptians crumbled it up. They turned it into a pigment. They made makeup out of it, paint out of it. So this guy, a Geiger, that's his name. He says, okay, I figured it out. Most cultures won't use a color term until they can actually produce that pigment. So until you can make the color, the color just isn't important to you, so you don't write about it. So they can make it, so they started writing about it. They traded it out. Everyone had it. Everyone wrote about it. He's like, guys, this is easy. Problem solved. Until the color is important, you just don't write about it. Cool. Everyone was really happy with that theory. <laughs> and then he came back and said, you know what? I actually don't believe that that's right. It's the other way around. What if instead of until I can produce a pigment, I just don't talk about it. It's until I know a color should exist, it simply doesn't. So instead of until I can make it, man, it's until I have a concept for that thing. There is literally no thing there for me to discuss. Now, that theory goes down like a bag of rocks. People hated him for saying that. They're like, that's nonsense. That's mumbo jumbo. And the biggest argument everyone kind of said against him was you can't test it. That's not science because you can't. we can't go back in time and ask these people, hey, do you see this color? Untestable. So he kind of gets made fun of. He gets vilified and he leaves it there. Cut to today. There's a tribe in Namibia called the Himba. We knew their language and they never had a word for blue. So we cracked their language. We're hanging out with them, talking. We realized they never once said the word blue. So now we can test Geiger's theory. So a bunch of researchers started showing these people colors, like little boxes of colors. Some would be green, some would be purple, some would be yellow, and some would be blue. And anytime they asked them, hey, point to one, I'm like, 100 squares that are all green and one would be blue or that one all would be yellow, one would be red. And they just say point to the different colored square. So we don't even have to get language involved. And they'd always point to the different ones. But anytime they put up blue as a different color, they wouldn't point to it. They wouldn't see it, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so from these himbo, we started to learn that, wait a second, maybe genuinely until you have a concept for something, there is no thing there for you to discuss. Blue, which we all take for granted as being this primary thing, until it was a concept, until it was in our language, there was no blue. Go back now to Homer. Whenever he spoke about the sky or water, he would refer to, well, let me let me flip it now. So I guess the researcher came out with this, this data, and he said, well, it looks like Geiger was right, everybody. There's no blue until we have a blue. At which point, every researcher says, what about the sky? Look, that doesn't make any sense. We're all under the bluest thing all day, every day. You don't need blue kangaroos. We don't need blue trees. We're under the sky. What about the sky? But if this theory is correct, then guess what? Well, it means the sky isn't blue. The sky is only blue because we have the concepts that will allow it to be blue. And when you go back, you start to see this. Homer used to refer to the sky always as being white or gray. When we talk to the Himba, before they learned the color blue, they would refer to the sky as being white, gray, or black. It was white during the day. It was black at night, gray largely around sunrise and sunset. Every once in a while, they'd talk about oranges or golds, a sky. But for the most part, it was just gray or white or black. They never described it as being blue. 
So here we go. Something we take for granted so much as the sky is blue is only true because we have the concepts, the stories, the patterns that allow our brains to convert it into blue. Well, didn't a researcher do this on their child? Yeah, that was so it was perfect. So the guy who was doing the research for the Himba, he everyone said the sky is blue. So why don't we have it? He had a young kid. And so to prove it, he raised this young girl and he never told her that the sky was blue. So she knew the color blue, like he taught her the color. He just made sure she never saw a book that said the sky is blue. She never watched TV shows that talked about a blue sky. They just kind of protected her from ever hearing that the sky is blue. And when she grew up, so he said she's a little older than about two and a half. He, they were in the park. It was like a perfectly blue sky day. So he sprung his trap. That was the first day he did it and started playing the color game with her. He's like, hey, baby, what color is this over here? And the girl would say, green, yay. And how about this flower over here? That's red, yay. He said, and then I finally did it. I pointed up at the sky. And he said, this bubbly, laughing, talkative girl just shut up. She went silent. And he said, she looked up at me scared, like I was pointing at nothing. Jesus. So, so we just kind of let it go. And he said, oh, any time it was a blue sky day, he'd take her outside. He'd say, hey, what color is that? For six months, she didn't say a word. She was just silence. She didn't quite get what was happening. Finally, he said she was a little older than three. She finally said her first color, and she said that the sky was white. Just like Homer, just like the Himba, just like all the ancient Greeks, she said the sky is white. She knew the color blue. She just didn't know it existed in the sky, so when she looked up, she never saw it. And so for the next six months, anytime he asked her what color is the sky, she always said white. And then she started to pepper in the word blue at about three and a half. And then he said by age four, it was pretty consistently blue. But by then she started preschool and they'd stopped controlling everything she saw. That's a real easy concept to come across. But I was telling this story um, at a school in Australia probably about four or five years ago. And there was a teacher there who adamantly did not believe that this could be true. They're like, There's, this is, that's nonsense. That's bollocks. And believe it or not, that teacher was about to have a kid. So I said, do it. Just make sure you never tell your kid that the sky is blue. And if they have a book that says it, just don't read them that part of the book. Cool. Didn't believe it. So two, two, three years go by. I go back and I said, so what happened? And he said, we were sitting on the trampoline, looking up at the sky, perfectly blue sky day. He said, the kid was about two, a little older than two. He said, hey, baby, what? guess what she said? White. He's like, I, wa I watched my own kid tell me that the sky is white, even though I knew she knew the color blue. I knew. Every and so then he said, I had a big conversation with her. Like, could it be another color? What else do you see in there? Wow. So he was able to kind of steer her over towards blue. But her natural instinct was just to say the sky was white. And so, <laughs> so that's what I love is this is when we go back to this idea of how does the brain actually work? You start to find these really trippy concepts where the brain isn't an active driver it's not just taking in the world and pumping out reality it's constantly adapting what we see what we sm smell what we hear what we taste everything we process is filtered through our stories through our concepts so when you go back to what you're talking about this concept of silence it will be different and it won't just be understood differently between cultures like we get the same silence we just interpret it differently Oh, no, no, we will feel, smell, hear, taste complete silences based on our stories, which is a very scary thing when you realize for a long time, we used to think we all live in the same world. We're just describing it differently. 
no, we don't live in the same world. We all live in very different worlds, and we're describing it according to our stories. And one of the points of education, then, hopefully, is to find a unified story, is to get disparate people onto a single page, which is one reason why teaching is so dang important, why we can't leave that to chance and just be like, hey, do whatever you want to do as a kid. No, if we want a coherent cultural story, we need to teach that to other human beings so that they experience it all in the same way and have some sort of commonality between them. But between cultures, that's where that gets really tricky. All right. Well, this is the awkward part of the podcast where, where I'm going to ask you to stay on the line, even though I'm going to close off the podcast and say goodbye, if you don't mind. No worries. Um, all right. So again, the book is Stop Talking, Start Influencing. Um, check out the Learning Blueprint. Uh, all the information is on LME Global. And we will put those links on the show notes. Any any other any other things people should check out, or we'll just uh, get together. And no, if you just if you like learning stuff, if you I have a YouTube channel, Jared Cooney Horvath, I think. So just every couple of weeks we pop up something new. I'll take a look at some research that has to do with learning and say what does that mean for us. So if you're just interested in the learning stuff, just know there's another resource there for you. And we just this was just the tip of the iceberg. So. Um, Again, to sort of wrap up where, where I started this whole thing. Again, once you hear that story, you can't unhear that story. <laughs> and and there's a lot. There was we could have gone for two hours. I had I wanted to talk to you about the. You talk about seventeen senses. You talk about how the brain doesn't work really well for multitasking. You talk in the yeah. book how you do not let your students take notes. Um, lot, you talk <laughs> about you know the controller. You intimated about you didn't get we didn't get into the details. There's so much in this book. Um, and again, not just for teachers, if you're a coach or you're, you know, you're the business manager, awesome, awesome stuff. And I really appreciate the time. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No, thank you so much. And everyone have a good afternoon or evening or morning, wherever you're at. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.